It's your American patriot, DJ Drew Shelton. With insight and analysis of today's rapidly shifting world, we welcome you to the Jewess Patriot Show. Talk Radio's premier Jewish activist, Cindy Gross. Featuring exclusive interviews with today's top newsmakers and trendsetters. Remember, you don't have to be Jewish to be with Cindy. And now, coming from our WGBB studios in the tri-state area, your Jewess patriot, Cindy Gross. Hello and welcome to the Jewess patriot. I am your host, Cindy Gross. Uh, I am so honored to bring you tonight's show. Uh, it's a very important show, a very timely show. It is the topic of victims of terror. So join me in my opening, my pearls of wisdom, because I am Zisel Peril, which means sweet pearl in Yiddish. Victims of terror. What does that mean to you? All I know is that almost every single day, whether or not I put on the news or I go on the internet and read news from the internet, or I even open up a newspaper, because yes, I do get newspapers delivered to my home, there is another hate crime, whether or not it's a riot of black teenagers attacking other black teenagers or the Asian community being uh, attacked, or women being attacked on the street. They're being uh, touched inappropriately, and the people that are doing it are getting away with it. But for me, as a Jew, I cannot ignore the alarming rate of anti-Semitism that is going on around the world. What is even scarier is that in the communities I live in and visit and take for granted as safe Jewish havens are areas that are now having the highest amount of hate crimes against Jews. Young women, young men, Mothers, fathers, grandparents, religious and non-religious, but especially religious because they wear their Judaism very visibly in public. Tonight, you're going to hear three interviews that I taped this week. One is from Israel and two are from America. It doesn't matter their ages or their connections to terror. It doesn't matter how they were attacked. They will never be the same as they wake up every day and go to sleep every night knowing what it is like to live in fear that they might be attacked again. They recall to themselves, the moments of terror they witnessed and they were a part of. If we don't get a hold of our 
legal systems, our judiciary systems, and make up our minds to make our streets safe again, to take hold of our schools and make sure that qualified teachers are teaching facts and appropriate history that makes sense and that is proven, then we might as well kiss our days living in this world goodbye. Because we have to change the narrative. And the three people you are going to meet are going to do everything they can within their power to work with you. You're going to meet the mayor from Efrat, Israel, because he has been in close contact with the D family since the murder of a mother, wife, and two daughters and sisters. A family of seven became a family of four. And he actually corrects me with the exact details. While they lived in Efrat, they were driving in another part of Israel. They were going to a holiday celebration together as a family. You're going to meet Sari Singer, who, for almost two decades, has worked to help other victims of terror so that they never experience what she experienced on her way home on a bus one night. And you're going to meet Joey Borgen, whose name has been in the press a lot these days. Whoever thought that going on 47th Street for Jews, which as everybody knows is the Diamond District, would be a place where a man in his 20s wearing a kippah or a skull cap would be the target of an attack that it it is a miracle he is alive today to tell his story so my words of wisdom are stop being complacent and help us change the laws help us change the narrative so that nobody is ever a victim again. Joining us now is someone who has been a guest on the show before, but unfortunately he made the news front and center over the Passover holiday because he is the mayor of Efrat, where the D family was viciously murdered, two uh, daughters and a mother and wife. And Mayor Oded Rivivi has been an advocate for Judea and Samaria. He is the fifth mayor of Efrat, and he is a prominent attorney. Thank you so much for joining us on this very important topic of terror in America and around the world, and especially targeting Jews because they are Jewish. My pleasure. Let me just make one quick correction. They were married actually in the Jordan Valley, they live in Efrat, so obviously all the focus was here in Efrat, but the terror attack actually happened quite far away from here in the Jordan Valley, 
on their way to a weekend in Tiberias. It just goes to show you how um, anywhere you go, because Israel is so small and surrounded by so many enemies with so much territory that it's happening everywhere. And it's very, it's scary, but yet if you talk to people in Israel, they feel safer than we do on the streets of New York. And I know that from people that went to uh, Israel for the holidays and they said they felt much safer in Jerusalem than they did in Manhattan. I don't think that um, attacks happen in Israel everywhere because it's such a small country. Attacks happen in Israel everywhere because, thank God, we have Jews living everywhere. And every single Jew living in any specific place is definitely a target. And you're absolutely right in that uh, respect that terror attacks don't only happen in the occupied territories or uh, disputed territories or Judea and Samaria, call it whatever they want. They happen in Tel Aviv, in Tiberias, in Haifa, in what is the not disputed territories. And they happen there just for the same reason that it's Jews and extremists who don't want to see Jews living safely in the state of Israel. And that's why we get attacked. And in order just to uh, maybe do explain what you've asked in your question, how people don't understand how we feel here when they come from abroad. So literally an hour before the funeral, I got a phone call from the British embassy. And a gentleman with a very strong English accent says to me, I've got a message for you from the family. Now, I'm thinking to myself, which family is he conveying a message to me from? I've been in touch with the family constantly from the minute we knew that they were shot up until this morning. And I spoke to the family five minutes before that phone call from the British embassy came. So I was already fuming as to what type of message he has to me. And then he says to me, the family don't feel safe coming to the funeral. Now I'm thinking to myself, is this real? And only three days later, I actually learned that obviously the intimate family that's living here in Israel, they had absolutely no problem going to the funeral. It was relatives coming from England that thought to themselves, gosh, it's going to be such a well-known funeral. So many Jews gathering in one specific place. It might uh, turn into a target And they were worried coming with their perspective from abroad, not realizing what I told the British representative from the embassy. Thank God we've got our own IDF, Israel Defense Force. We've got our police forces. They will make sure that everybody is safe. And if your ambassador is afraid to come to the funeral, don't blame it on us because we're going to make sure that that event is going to start and end with nobody being hurt. And nobody was, thank God. And, you know, you bring up a point like I'm talking from the American perspective, and I happen to have been in Europe over Pesach. And I will tell you, except for Jewish media, there was virtually nothing being said. And so many of our listeners here are not Jewish and don't even know all the details of what is going on. So maybe you could just fill them in very briefly about the D family, uh, I mean, he was a very respected rabbi from Britain. You're in Efrat, where many people live that come from other countries to make Aliyah in Israel. So fill in, please. So the D family actually came at first to Efrat 20 years ago. 
when Leo wasn't a rabbi yet, but he came to Efrat to study under uh, Rabbi Reskin in order to become a rabbi. After a few years in, of studying in Efrat, they went back to England where they served as a rabbi and a rabbitson in two different communities. And after six years, they decided they can't do it anymore. They want to raise their kids in the Jewish homeland. And that's why they decided to come back to Israel. And again, they didn't have any question where to go and live in Israel. By this time, they knew already of Efrat. They knew what Efrat is all about. And that's why they set their homes in Efrat. The whole terror attack did catch uh, attention because, first of all, it was during the holidays that, you know, everybody is in a very peaceful atmosphere, a very festive atmosphere. And all of a sudden you have this terror attack, which is a complete contradiction to the atmosphere that you were trying to build up during those days. They were traveling in two cars because the car they have is not big enough to fill in the whole family. And they were on their way to Tiberias where they were supposed to meet the grandparents and the aunt, where the grandparents came from Switzerland. The aunt came the night before from England. And this convoy is doing its journey to a holiday in Tiberias by the Sea of Galilee. And all of a sudden, everything turns around. And they all do a U-turn. And they spend that weekend in the hotel next to the hospital in order to be next to uh, Lucy, because at that time they weren't sure if she was going to make it or not going to make it. So we have on Sunday a funeral of the two daughters. It's horrific to have one funeral of a youngster the age of 14, 16. And when you have two of them, it's just beyond explaining and beyond being able to realize what tragedy is in front of your eyes. They're crying their eyes out, basically saying, that they don't know how they're going to tell the mother when she wakes up that she's lost two kids, only to realize later that 24 hours later, the mother is also uh, determined dead. And they decide in a very noble act to donate all her organs. Uh, she was in a very unique uh, situation where because immediately as she got injured, she had uh, oxygen going into her body. They managed to save all her organs for actually successful transplant. And they managed to save debatable between five to seven individuals because if you uh, count different counts, you can up, come up to seven people because they also donated uh, organs to uh, blind people. And by that, they turned them from blind people that have problems of seeing to actually people that can see. So... They literally saved five lives and they saved another two individuals that will be able to see after their incident. And then you were heading for a second funeral or third funeral. And all this is happening in pouring rain, in very heavy fog. And if you were in a fraud during that day, you would see a human chain of people from their house all the way to the cemetery. It was 10 kilometers long, people standing in the rain, raising the flag proudly, trying to show their support and comfort to the D family. And the D family, it's like a cycle where we want to encourage them and strengthen them. And when we meet them, they're the ones who are encouraging us and strengthening us. And if I may, they also decided on three projects to dedicate the memory of the three individuals, each and every one of them symbolizing the uniqueness of the 
differences in those three individuals. And for Lucy, who was eagerly active in making people happy, they decided to build a party hall that people will be able to celebrate. And when they celebrate there, they will literally fulfill Lucy's dream of making people happy. Uh, in one of the daughters name, Maya, which her name translates from God, and she loved everything that we got from God. She loved the nature. She loved people. Her best activity was to jump into a cold water spring during a hot day. So we're going to build a water spring in her memory. And the youngest daughter, Rina, she was a youth counselor for a youth group that didn't actually have a clubhouse. And we're going to build a clubhouse in her memory. So this has been a very, literally it's two weeks, two weeks at this moment is when I met Leo after he drove all the way by himself from the Jordan Valley to Adassa Hospital. And it's been like a roller coaster, but we're looking forward as to how we can carry on fulfilling the dreams and the messages that the D family's victims have actually left behind them. And you don't have to be Jewish to participate. This is innocent families being uh, victimized and attacked just because they were Jewish and they wanted to celebrate their holiday with their family and friends. That's basically what happened. And I'm going to add something else. I know internationally on social media, everybody has been posting at the request of the D family to post the Israeli flag, show Israeli pride. I've seen a lot of it together with the uh, picture of the three victims. And I'm telling people, don't stop because like it shivers over because it was news now. We have to keep this going and ongoing until people around the world, governments around the world, start taking this seriously and joining the Israeli government in taking the positive actions that we need to stop all this um, vicious attacks and violence. Absolutely. Uh, anything else you would like to share with us? Uh, there's so much going on in Israel right now. We just celebrated Yom HaShoah. We have a very big 75th anniversary coming up. Uh, tell us in this time where, where you're talking about such a sad, um, vicious attack, what else is going on, what you would like to share? So I think now us as a community, we're really focusing on trying to make the D family uh, comfortable. We're in this campaign of raising uh, the donations for these three projects. So if you can share them on your program, we'll be more than happy and extremely grateful. And Rabbi D basically, he, he gave so many different messages throughout this week, meeting so many people. But if I want to put my emphasis on one thing, which I think will answer your question about the situation in Israel, about the situation in the world, about um, how they're coping with their tragedy. And he said, there are bad people in the world. There are bad things that happen in the world. But if each and every one of us will do just one good deed, the whole world will become a better place. And the reason he launched his campaign with the focus of creating good is in order for people to say, oh, I don't know what good I can do. So here you have a valid cause to make good, to make people happy, and to turn this tragedy, to turn this event where extremists don't understand that private individuals have the right to live even if they have different beliefs, different religions, and to take that into a positive action and to focus on that. So that's what we're focusing these days. Maya Oded Ravivi, thank you so much for joining the Jewess Patriot. Next time you're going to come back with better uh, news, more exciting news, and uh, 
We, you are always welcome. And of course, we are going to share all the information, the, uh, to our, with our audience about where they can help participate in any and all of the projects you are working so that the D's family will know that Americans from and people, all our listeners internationally, both Jewish and non-Jewish, support them and and wish them no more sorrows. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. And I'll pass on the message to the family as well. Thank you. Thank you. On this episode of People Who Are Victims of Terror, I am really honored to bring on our next guest, Very few people who have interviewed him can tell the story that I can tell about Joey Borgen. I've known Joey since he's a little boy. I remember Joey as part of a group of boys who went to uh, yeshiva. They were all very close. They still are very close. They've gone to each other's bar mitzvahs and many of their weddings. They celebrate many holidays together. And I've watched Joey grow up to become a very uh, proud Jew, Zionist, a good friend, and a community leader. Joey was the victim of terror in New York City in broad daylight. And he's going to tell his story. Many of you have heard it. Many of you haven't heard it from Joey. Uh, What people don't know is that I'd been involved with Joey from before the attack, during the attack, the immediate after I spoke with Joey, and up to today. And he's going to tell you his story, what happened to him, what has followed up, and warnings about if it could happen to him, it could happen to you. So Joey Borgen, Thank you for joining the Jewess Patriot. First of all, Cindy, thank you so much for having me. And that introduction, you can't see, but I'm blushing. Thank you very, very much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. Well, uh, I know about that day very well because I remember my son telling me he was going to meet you because you were on your way to a pro-Israel rally in Times Square. Correct. Yeah, that was towards the, it was towards this event took place on May 20th, 2021, 2021. And it was the tail end of COVID. So it was, you know, still the period of time where at least myself, I was working from home full time. And like other people like Michael and other people, I'm sure, um, you know, we worked that day and we had, you know, in our back of our minds to go to this rally later in the day. It was in the midst of the Israel-Hamas conflict, and it was actually the day where the ceasefire was agreed to. So worked from home, um, you know, finished up work, hopped on the subway, was touching base, communicating with, you know, my WhatsApp group, which included Michael and some of my other friends from, you know, Upper East Side, Upper West Side, around the city. And yeah, just, you know, it's ironic because the week prior, same routine, I, you know, and I, I was there for hours, same location, same rally point, same everything, wearing my yarmulke for hours without any issue. But, you know, this week, uh, that was a prior Tuesday, but this Thursday, the 20th, um, I got off the subway and I was walking towards the rally. I was walking down Broadway a couple blocks from the rally. 
and can't really get into too many details about the case, but uh, essentially I saw someone chasing me out of the corner of my eye. Um, before I could react, I was just surrounded by a group of individuals. I call them counter-protesters, pro-Palestinian sympathizers to be safe, diplomatically correct, politically correct. Um, but yeah, they proceeded to kick me, punch me, hit me with weapons, pepper spray or mace me. I'm not entirely sure, to be honest about that. But yeah, and while this was all taking place, just shouting anti-Semitic slurs and comments towards my direction as I was getting assaulted and pummeled. And thankfully, within a matter of minutes, the NYPD came, they dispersed the crowd, got me to the hospital, made sure I was relatively okay. Um, and thankfully, you know, I made it out alive, not to sound, you know, overdramatic or hyperbole. But yeah, I mean, I could have died, made it out alive. And ever since then, more so in wake of the support I've received, I've been able to kind of get out there and spread the word about anti-Semitism, raising awareness and just trying to make a difference, not even related only to the Jewish community, but also, you know, other communities that are dealing with hate crime as well. So I just want to emphasize something you said, that due to the fact that this is an ongoing case, it's a very public case, it's received a lot of press, that uh, you are limited on what you can discuss because there is an ongoing uh, court case and uh, trial. Yeah. So we really someone, appreciate someone, you. Yeah, someone pleaded guilty today, actually, so that's public information, but... Someone pleaded guilty today to uh, one of the attackers and someone else is due to plead guilty or not guilty tomorrow and we'll see what happens. But and that's as, all public, yeah. So. And as you said, uh, you're in a WhatsApp group and I'm, I remember the day very well because my son got stuck at work and he didn't even know what happened. I actually uh, called him because I had seen it on the news. And he was like in shock. It was disbelief. Correct. I mean, I the the way the best way to describe it is, I mean, I used to always say it could happen anywhere, you know, it could happen to anybody. But, you know, not to sound cliche, it was kind of just something that I said, but not truly like felt or believed. You know, grow, growing up in Long Island, living in Manhattan the past decade plus, and just being a Jew in this environment and, you know, in the New York environment my entire life. Let me ask you a question. I don't know if you can answer, but if you can, how has this affected you? Like you said, you work now. You are a professional. Uh, you're a modern Orthodox boy or man. I still think of you as a boy because I remember okay. you running around. But man, uh, I know your whole family. I've known them for decades because we all we celebrated graduation together and Getting, you know, Bibles together and part, many bar mitzvah parties, etc. How has this affected you in your life daily? Honestly, it creates a lot of stressors that not because maybe people would be better at just kind of ignoring everything and dismissing everyone and not wanting to maybe speak out about things or, you know, kind of help in any way they can but i'll give you an example i you know the committee hearing recently that my father testified at um i was asked to testify um and you know per legal counsel similar to kind of how i'm limited here uh, i was advised i shouldn't testify 
But, you know, when I was presented with the opportunity and I was not able to, you know, partake in that opportunity, you know, I was very torn because obviously, you know, I want to make a difference and do what I can. But obviously I got to, you know, focus on what I'm dealing with right now. And then obviously between court and my disagreement with one deal in particular and yeah, it's, it's stressful. I'll be honest. It's a little stressful just because I do a full-time job and this is just extra stuff to kind of, you know, deal with on the side. Has it changed your mind about wearing a yarmulke on the streets of Manhattan? Um, I'd like to be honest with you. I didn't really put much thought into wearing a yarmulke before and whether or not I wore one, was wearing one or not. I mean, when I was wearing one, it was, or I wasn't wearing one. It wasn't like dictated by other people or other, or my environment. It was more so just where I was going or what I was doing. But nowadays, for example, if I go to shul, I mean, truthfully speaking, I mean, I wear, I wear, I put my yarmulke on outside of shul like a year ago. I mean, two, I'm sorry, not a year ago, more than two years ago at this point, I would have probably just worn my yarmulke to shul and not even thought about it like, you know, at all. So yeah, I think like, I'm, yeah, definitely it has affected my ability to kind of just put that out of my mind and kind of just, you know, consider what could happen again. Yeah. I remember your father being interviewed about how he found out about what happened and his reaction. How has this whole incident uh, impacted your family? I, I mean, I, in particular, I think, I, I think to my little brother who's a senior in high school now graduating and we're very very close and I didn't really comprehend or maybe I wasn't cognizant of the impact that had just beyond me because I had so much going on but for example I mean I know it affected my brother and having to see you know his someone like so close to him in that situation you know on the news see videos of it and everything and obviously see pictures and I'm in the hospital so I mean, I can't speak for them, but, and I'm sure my mom was just torn. Like, I can't even imagine how she felt, but yeah, I, you know, not to, you know, go to the classic words, but they were shocked, surprised, you know, obviously torn up about it and uh, just wanted to make sure I was okay. How do you feel when you like watch the news or read a newspaper and you hear about another random anti-Semitic attack, especially in New York? Not to sound cynical, but sorry, that's my dog in the background. He has allergies. <laughs> not not to sound cynical, but it's a little disheartening because I, I don't want to say not much has changed, but it kind of really does feel that way in the sense that, you know, I would love to say, like, I mean, I can't go up numerous days without seeing all over Instagram, all over social media, another attack or another some incident involving anti-Semitism. So... I mean, I would love to say that things have changed, that things are different, but it just makes me more, I don't know, frustrated with the situation in in the sense that it hasn't really improved, despite the fact that people are more aware and that people know that things have to change. But at the end of the day, things aren't changing. So actually, the numbers are proving that it's gotten worse, not better. We are living in times where the rates of uh, random hate acts, especially anti-Semitic acts, have more than doubled. And even the most liberal of Jewish organizations are uh, doing research and publishing um, reports 
proving that it's increasing, not decreasing. Yeah, it's so that's I mean, yeah, I so it's the thing is, it's very hard to see, like when you see there's an issue that's clearly visible and people are aware of it, but nothing's being done. So that's just a little kind of like cosm of my case <laughs> a little bit. But yeah, it's just a little frustrating, especially because, you know, it's been two years and I feel like hate to say it, but things have not really improved that much. And like you said, maybe even gotten worse. Uh, Anti-Semitism is not political. And your father really stood out. You mentioned, uh, I guess, last week, uh, the hearings with Alvin Bragg. Your father was one of the people who did testify. And I think your father had maybe, because I know many of the people that actually testified, but because of the Jewish angle, his statement to uh, Congressman Nadler <laughs> was really uh, very, very touching and personal. Uh, he said, you know, you're a Jew. I called your office. I didn't get a response. So did I, I, I also called his office. I didn't get a response. I spoke to them after that hearing. I spoke to them before my last court date. He doesn't care. They don't care. I hate to say it. He's He doesn't uh, even, have an, he doesn't even have an office. I called to see where their office is. He's in the Upper East Side, Upper West Side, his district. His office is downtown on Barrick Street, and you have to make an appointment. He doesn't have an office here. Like, what kind of, this guy's a joke, objectively speaking, but go ahead. And then, of course, uh, Senator Schumer, and your father said he voted for him, and he would never vote for him again, <laughs> reached out to him. And these Another are person. people that are New York Jews in power. What What is your... Um, I'm sure you're asked this a lot. What is your advice to people or what do you say to people when they ask you, like, what do you think that we could do to stop this? I mean, stop random acts, stop the uh, anti-Semitism, because so much of it is based on lies and um, personal agendas of a different type. What do you tell people? that there has to be accountability. If there's no accountability and no deterrent for people doing this, it's going to continue to happen. And that's kind of something that's really stuck out with my case is because one of the individuals on my case actually stated, you know, it was stated by the, the I think the prosecuting office uh, at his, at his arraignment or whenever he was being, you know, you know, put up, no, the bail was being discussed, whatever it was, you got to look it up for me. Um, but it was said on the record that he said he would do it again. And I was at court with this guy last week on Thursday. He complete farce of the system, thumbing his nose at the system, mocking me, smirking at me, clearly has no remorse. It's so when, when this takes place and someone like this is giving a slap on the wrist, why, why, why would, why would anything change? Honestly, like if there's no accountability and there's no, full-fledged justice taken against those who perpetrate hate and take out these crimes where, I mean, another couple of minutes, I could have been dead, honestly. You know, another, this guy's whacking me with his crutches, steel crutches with a weapon on video in Times Square, saying he's going to do it again, got arrested on a bail. I mean, I keep going. When, you know, someone like this is given a slap on the wrist deal, I apologize, but that doesn't teach anyone anything. So why would anything change? What is what is your thoughts on, um, you know, I remember I we've discussed this, so I know the answer, but I want you to share it really with yeah, my audience. 
I know a lot of people think they're doing wonderful things by sharing the picture of your face after the attack immediately. And you and I have discussed that this is not really very healthy for you or for any other victim who has this nightmare thrown in their face over and over and over again. And I know people mean well, and I want this to come out in a very positive way. How can people actually help you in a positive way without rehashing the worst of the worst and without uh, causing you any more emotional distress? I think the biggest thing at this point is most of the criminal proceedings outside of trial have fortunately, or unfortunately, depending on the outcomes, however you want to view them. But the reality is that there's may or may not be a trial. If there is a trial, that's going to be extremely, extremely difficult and tough for me to go through. And at that point, I would hope that, you know, there would be a nice contingent of people who could potentially show up and just, offer their support because I'm sure if there is a trial and I do have to testify and everything like that, just like there were hopefully we have support on my side, I'm sure there'll be support on the other side. So I think at this point, kind of with everything else kind of wrapped up, I think the biggest thing, we, I mean, I I've tried everything in terms of getting the deals changed, revoked, affected, and nothing else I could really do there. So assuming there is a trial, I just think that, yeah, that's going to be hard. So if everyone can just come out and support me at trial, that would be, I think, the best thing, um, you know. And in terms of the pictures and everything, um, yeah, it's obviously not ideal. And I know everyone means well, but you can obviously, I'm sure you guys can all find me. And if anyone really means well, they can always follow up with me. And if they have any questions, reach out to me. And I'm sure they can run up by me and everything will be okay. But yeah, I'm yeah, I'm always available. So. If anyone ever wants to do anything, they can always, you know, run it by me. So no problems. And of course, that includes nice, young, single, modern, orthodox women. Yeah, especially. I'm, actually, uh, I'm single right now. So, yeah, my, my phone book's open for that as well. So no problems. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I don't know if you want to give out publicly how people can reach out to you. But if you don't, people can reach out to me because I definitely will get it to him. And I know people who are organizing in a very positive, constructive, professional way, uh, gatherings on behalf of Joey with the approval of Joey. Um, do you want to share with people how they can reach you? Just look me up on Instagram. Uh, my name's Joey Borgen. So J-O-E-Y-B-O-R-G-E-N. So, I mean, you can look me up on Instagram if you need to message me or anything. And uh, yeah, don't worry about it. Cause I get plenty of funny people who, contact me for not good reasons. So it's fine. You can definitely reach out to me and if you have good reasons as well. <laughs> and again, with we are including in that very nice modern Orthodox girls who are looking for a worker who yeah, is a proud Jew and a proud Zionist. Say, yeah, Cindy, yeah, whatever you say, Cindy, no problems. I don't need to, uh, you already gave me a great introduction. So <laughs> I trust you. Any last words? For our audience, because this is a really uh, a very serious topic and your voice is very important, especially during these times. Um, I sh- thank you for having me. Um, obviously, everyone's 
who supported me and has been there for me is amazing and great. And I can't thank you enough. Almost there, almost the finish line. And uh, hopefully we get a positive outcome with everything that's happened in my case and anyone else's case who's kind of, you know, been unfortunately affected by anti-Semitism or even hate crime in general. So uh, my best wishes go out to everyone who supported me and anyone who wants to reach out to me and discuss anything else. Obviously, you can go through Cindy or reach out to me. Thanks. Joey Borgen on this very serious show of Victims of Terror. I can't thank you enough for joining thank the you. Jewish Patriots. Have a great night. Thank you, you so much. You too. Thanks. Joining us now is Sari Singer. I'm not going to really spend a long time introducing her because her story is so powerful that nobody but Sari can discuss it. She is a victim of terror. And rather than sit back, she fights back. So Sari, please uh, tell our audience your story and welcome to the Jewess Patriot because you are a Jewess Patriot. And I've known you many years and I know how you fight. Thanks, Cindy, for having me. Um, I'm honored to be here and to be able to share my story. And I always say, like, this is just not my story. It's a story of thousands of people in Israel that have been directly impacted by terrorism, and especially over the last couple of weeks with everything going on in Israel and then the D family and, and the, the tragedy there. It's even more important, I think, that victims of terrorism, especially those that have been involved in terrorist attacks in Israel, that they really have a voice and that they're heard and that their stories are listened to and that the people that are lost from the bereaved families are never forgotten. So um, you are American, we should say. You correct. are American. You live, in the, you live in the tri-state area and you're one of the biggest uh, Jewish activists in America. So you are an American and you are a victim of terror in Israel. Correct? Correct. correct. So, I actually, my story really starts on 9-11 because I, my office was about two blocks away from the World Trade Center. My subway stop was actually Rector Street, which is right, again, a block away. And on that morning, I overslept and wasn't downtown in the office. I was still on the Upper West Side. And I remember waking up and jumping out of bed and seeing that it was, it was like 840 something. And I'm like, I am late. And I went to turn on the TV to see the weather. And I saw that the towers had just been hit. And I immediately called the office and they said that we were being evacuated. The building shook. They didn't know what happened. And I said, well, something hit the World Trade Center. And I did not leave my apartment for three days. I was really scared. A lot of friends came over and stayed by me that were at Columbia and Barnard. And I remember calling my parents and my dad said, don't come home to New Jersey. There could be something that happens in the Lincoln Tunnel or the bridge. Just stay where you are. Um, and in the weeks after 9-11, we couldn't return to work. And when we finally did, um, I could not handle being downtown. I remember getting off at, at the subway stop at Chamber Street and walking down to the office, and you could still smell the smells of the building and everything burning. And so in December of 2001, I quit my job, and I moved to Israel to volunteer with organizations that were working with victims of terrorism. And then a year and a half after being in Israel, I was... I was a vic I became a victim on June 11, 2003. Uh, I was on bus 14. I was actually meeting a friend for dinner in the German colony. And normally I used to walk to the German colony because I lived in Katsimon and it was like a five minute walk. But I'd come from from my office that day. And I remember getting onto the 
onto the number 14 bus at Machane Yehuda at the marketplace. And it was packed. It was rush hour. People were pushing to get on the bus. And I remember that there were two seats in the front section, the last two seats. Normally I would have taken the aisle seat because if somebody had gotten on with some like older that had had packages, I would have wanted to get up for them. But for some reason that day, I didn't do what I normally did. I actually moved in and sat next to the window. And most people don't know this, but I, I didn't always love sitting next to the window on the buses in Israel because when I was in Israel for the year after high school, I was on a bus once where um, stones were thrown to it and the window, sh the glass had shattered. And so I never liked sitting right next to the window always. So, but that day I actually moved in. And when I moved in, I remember the girl sat down next to me, her boyfriend. And I remember looking outside for like a split second and there were hundreds of people waiting for buses and the people were pushing to get onto our bus and the bus driver had shut the door on them. And the bus started moving. And literally at that point, I had just called my friend to tell her I was going to be late for dinner. And I went to put my cell phone in my knapsack that was on the floor in front uh, by my feet. And when I went to open the knapsack and I bent down to put in my my phone, all of a sudden I felt this huge shockwave uh, kind of tear into the bus. And I always say the only way that you can explain the shockwave, it's like two pieces of metal that hit so hard against each other and vibrate back. That's what I remember feeling like. And I remember trying to lift my hands up to my face and my hands couldn't lift up. They were being pushed down and my back was being pushed against, um, against the seat. And um, my eyes had shut from the shockwave, luckily, because that saved my sight. When the blast wow. stopped, I couldn't open my left eye at all because something had hit it and it, the eyelid was already swollen shut. And my right eye, I could barely open just enough to see the roof of the bus had fallen in and the man's head in front of me and he wasn't moving. And after the blast, there's like this split second of silence. And I always say it's not the silence you hear in the summertime when the crickets are out. It's literally the silence of death all around you. And it's a split second, but it feels like so much longer. And then after that silence, my ears started ringing really loud and I started screaming. And I I didn't think initially it was a terrorist attack. I thought that we had gotten into a bus accident. But soon, as soon as my ears started ringing, I realized that that was what had happened. Now, how many people died in that attack? So there were over 100 of us injured. And there were 17 innocent people that were killed on the bus, including an American named Alan Beer, originally from Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, what what I want to really tell people how you took this and you built a foundation. Tell them about strength to strength. Sure. Uh, so. I lived in Israel for a year after the attack. I came home to the States to recuperate. But I think for me, one of the best things I did was to stay in Israel and not leave. A, because terrorism wants to paralyze us and make us afraid. And if I didn't return, then the terrorists win. For me, it was important to be back there. So I did stay for another year. Um, and during that year, I think it gave me a lot of support. When I returned to the U.S., though, I didn't have any support here. There was nobody that I knew that had been through a terrorist attack in Israel that was here. There was no one to connect me to anybody, and there were no resources at the time. So I remember Googling Americans and terrorist attacks in Israel, and I found two Americans who had been in the Mike's Place bombing a 
few weeks before my attack. That was April 30th, um, 2003. And I reached out to the two of them and we had what we, what our organization now has is we had our first survivor circle meeting. Um, and so that kind of started the impetus for the nonprofit Strength to Strength, which is that I founded to support victims of terrorism globally with peer-to-peer -peer support and long-term psychological needs. And we work with organizations that are on the ground working with victims of terrorism in 15 different countries around the world, making sure that victims have support in terms of uh, meeting other victims from other places, knowing that they're not alone and that they have a support network for themselves um, that they can always reach out to. And we've been very blessed and lucky to have met some incredible people in these countries. And through the most horrific situations that we've all gone through, I think the best thing that we could say is that we've connected with each other and it crosses all barriers. It's, it's not only Jewish. So we have Jews, non-Jews, Christians, Muslims, any civilian who's been in a terrorist attack, they have a place with us. And we work with organizations in Northern Ireland in the UK, in Spain, France, Algeria, Iraq, Israel, Argentina, Uganda, Kenya, Belgium, Australia, uh, and here in the U.S., we work with the 9-11 community, with Oklahoma City, uh, Boston Marathon. I was just in Boston on Monday for the 10-year anniversary of the Boston Marathon bombing with our survivors. And basically, it is a global peer support group, uh, making sure that victims know that they have support, that they're never alone, and that there are other people there that understand what they've been through and that the they have whatever they need going forward. I listened to you today and I've heard your story and I've worked with you many years and it's just as chilling and touching from the first time I heard it years ago. And I listen to you and I know your strength and I know how you volunteer endless hours to help people. What do you tell people who tell you that, you know, these you see every day in the news, the terror attacks, and really most people don't even see because the mainstream media doesn't even cover it. It's, Jewish media that you and I both follow that we hear about it. When people tell facts about Israel that aren't true and that Israelis deserve this or stuff of that, and I'm sure you get a lot of that, especially now with the alarming rates of anti-Semitism. It's interesting because I thank God in the countries where I've been and where I've spoken, and I've spoken in in some of the some of the places around the world where they are anti-Israel. But when you're a victim there's no differentiation. You know, uh, we all stick together. We all support each other. So I don't, I don't think within the victim's realm that back, that doesn't really happen so much. It's really people that don't know what they're talking about that come out and say these things. And, and I feel like, you know, some people would, will agree with me. They'll disagree with me on things, but I do feel that, um, that these were innocent civilians on my bus. We all were going home or going to meet friends for dinner. And the fact that, you know, anybody could say that any civilian deserves to, to have somebody come and try and hurt or murder them to me, it, there's just no words for how I feel about that. Um, I do not, I do not differentiate between victims. I don't care if you were, if, if you had no physical injuries and only psychological, it doesn't matter to me. When you are, are impacted by a terrorist attack, sometimes the psychological injuries are much worse than the physical ones for people. And so I, I never make anyone minimize what they've been through. At the same time, I don't want people minimizing what I went through. And the fact that, that, that the conflict is very, very, 
um, complex and that most people are getting their information that's inaccurate over social media and other outlets that might not be um, giving correct uh, details or information. A perfect example is, you know, um, the D family, they were on their way to Tveria, like they were on the way for a family trip. And all you see everywhere is that West Bank, West Bank, West Bank. And I'm just like, well, how do you know they were in the West Bank? Like, where were they exactly on the road? Right. And there's like, so the information that's being put out there is very, um, is distorted and, and people are just listening to it. And I always say, when I speak to college students, especially, you need to go and do your research. Don't just take face value when you see something once over the internet that you've looked up that that's correct, because it might not be. Uh, there's a lot of information out there that is not correct. And it's very hard to distinguish between what is and what isn't. Um, and sometimes I have a hard time with it, but I do think that I don't feed into um, the the haters. I really don't. Um, I know what happened to me. I know the truth. It's my story. I tell every victim this. Your story is your story. No one can take that away from you. And no one can tell you you're wrong because Correct. it happened to you. They weren't there. I, I wish that the media here did focus on a lot more international things. When I go overseas, I see many more things uh, of diverse conversations versus what I hear in the media here in the United States. I think that it's a disservice to us that our media is skewed the way it is. Uh, and I don't think I'll, we'll ever be able to change that, but it, it's hard to distinguish between things and it's not easy. And I think the public needs to really educate themselves about what's going on and have real conversations around this instead of people just making assumptions. And that's what's bringing up more anti-Semitism and more hate by the assumptions people are making. And again, right. the stuff that's out there on social media. We have only a couple of minutes left and I want to make sure everybody knows how to reach you at strength to strength, but you wanted to mention something about a, a an ongoing lawsuit? So I was approached a number of months ago um, by an organization called American First Legal, and they had said that they were looking to put together a lawsuit uh, for victims, uh, not for any financial gain. I want to make that clear. It's because um, the Taylor Force Act, which is in memory of Taylor Force, who was, an, who was an American who attended West Point and who served in Iraq and Afghanistan, was on a, a, a university uh, graduate trip uh, from Vanderbilt, if I'm not mistaken. And he was in uh, he was in Israel when a terrorist um, killed him. And the family fought very hard for some legislation called the Taylor Force Act, which makes it that the U.S. government cannot use our taxpayer money for foreign aid to the Palestinian Authority that will go to funding the Pay for Slave program, which is a real program, which people don't realize that when a terrorist, when my terrorist committed the attack that he did, immediately after his family went to the local bank and was given a lump sum of money and their Thereafter, every month, an additional money for them to live because of the attack that he carried out and how many people he killed and the amount of people that were injured. And that the money that they received is based on how the impact of, of the attacks. And so the Biden administration had resumed sending money to the Palestinian Authority um, in September. And 
we saw an uptick of attacks, rampant attacks from that time. And I said that I felt that the attacks were happening more now because th there was a monetary incentive for people. And the truth is, is that that taxpayer money, if any American, you know, has any issue with it, it should be going to help people not to promote and perpetuate terrorism. And so we are asking, so I joined the, the lawsuit with um, Terror Force's parents, Stuart and Robbie Force, along with Congressman Jackson from Texas, and we filed the lawsuit um, to stop to act to, I want to say demand, but that the Biden administration should be following the Taylor Force Act, which was signed into law in 2018, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. And so we just want them to follow the law and stop the money going over to help fund terrorism. And the fact that I feel like my taxpayer money and that any taxpayer should feel that their money is going to perpetuate and promote and 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 make terrorism, you know, something rampant and continuous. I'm horrified by it. Uh, so we, we have to wrap it up. So quickly, let's just tell everybody, Sari Singer, Strength to Strength, where can they hear, uh, reach out to you? It's stosglobal.org. So it's stosglobal.org. Never silence your voice. It is so much needed around the world for Jews and non-Jews who are victims of terror and who are family uh, members and friends of victims of terror. That is something your organization works very hard with. People don't realize the impact neighborhoods have from knowing somebody that is a victim of terror. Thank you so much for joining the Jewess Patriot, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. This is your American DJ, Drew Shelton. This week's featured song, written by Broadway legend Jerry Herman and sung by Eddie Legend, Eddie Fisher, both Jewish entertainers. The song is called Milk and Honey. It was the featured hit from the 1961 musical. Honey symbolizes sweetness and milk symbolizes quality, richness of taste, and nourishment. The goodness of Israel, both nourishing and pleasant. Happy birthday, Israel. This is the Jewess Patriot. We will see you next week. Until then, love somebody and be kind. This is the land.
This is a land of sun and song, and this is a world of good and plenty, humble and proud and young and strong. And this is the place where the hopes of the homeless and the dreams of the lost combine. This is the land that This is Cindy Gross, the Jewess Patriot. I look forward to seeing you next week.